Think about the last time you were outdoors at night, particularly in a dark place. You remember all the stars you could see? Even in my neighborhood, which is, you know, not particularly removed from city lights, whatever. I take the dog for a walk at night. Every once in a while, like, what is, oh my gosh, that's Jupiter. Look how bright that is. Or, oh, Mars. And you just see all these amazing things, bright planets or Polaris or something like that. And remember the last time you went camping or maybe out on your deck in Packwood or wherever your cabin is and it was really dark and not only could you see the bright stars and planets but you're like oh my goodness it's the Milky Way look at the galaxies there's so much up there that I don't normally see and then add some of the other man-made and spectacular things like maybe you Got to see the International Space Station go over the top, or maybe you saw the string of Starlink satellites, or been in a place where a meteorite came through and just lit everything up. And when it's dark outside and something like that happens, or you see something like that, it gets your attention. And that's where the story of the Magi come in. So we're going to be looking at that in Matthew chapter 2 today. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the Magi, who are they? Well, maybe you've got a manger scene and they look like three kings or you've heard different songs about them or whatever, but uh, whether they were kings is doubtful. How many of them? There's not really anything specific about that. You might think that you know their names, but that really develops later on in the tradition. So if you separate out the tradition from what actually happened, who were the Magi? Well, they really did exist, and they existed in like Persia and Babylon and that area over there. And they were a certain class of people. They were upper class people. They weren't kings. They weren't necessarily rulers, but they were upper class primarily because they were educated. They were like the scientists of the day and they mixed all sorts of things in together. There were astronomers, but also astrologers, not in the tell me your fortune, you know, kind of thing, charlatan sort of way, but they believed that everything was connected. 
And so if something big was happening on earth, there was probably some sign in the heavens. And if there was some sign in the heavens, it probably meant something big was going on on earth because they saw creation as being all connected. So they were scientists and they were wealthy and they were educators and they paid attention to a lot of important things. And even though they could have come from a wide swath of the East, a pretty good guess of where they came from in this story is probably from Babylon. And so the next question that you kind of have to ask is, why would non-Jews have any interest whatsoever in a Jewish king who was born a thousand miles away from them? And that will require me to tell you a little bit more of the story. Because maybe you'll remember, because of the last sermon series that we were in, that we talked a little bit about how the Jews were taken to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. And this happened in about the 6th century BC. And so they took all of the uh, upper crust of Judaism, the, the religious people, the religious leaders, the governmental leaders, the most educated people, and they plop them down in Babylon. And basically they say to them, you're going to be here for a while, so you might as well get used to it. And in fact, the prophet at the time tells them, you're going to be here for a while, so seek the good of the city. Get involved with the people around you. And they do. And at some point, while the Jewish elite is in Babylon, apparently some of them meet Magi. And they probably get invited to hang out at the same parties or go to the same academies or listen to the same lectures or um, you know, do research together. But there's this cross-pollination. And as the Magi and the educated Jews begin to talk to each other, it's surmised, and I think this is probably a pretty good guess, that the Jews began to tell the Magi about their story. They heard about the origins of the Jewish people. They heard about God. They heard about the prophets. They heard about the coming Messiah. And some of that must have been very interesting to the Magi. Because at the heart of a lot of the prophecies about the Messiah, there are predictions that the Jewish Messiah and his rule would bring God's justice and peace not to the Jewish people, but to the whole world. Places like Isaiah um, has a number of instances, like in chapter 11, where it says, the wolf is going to lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Or in Isaiah 60, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So can you hear, like, maybe the beginnings of the story in that? there is going to be this Messiah who is going to appeal to the nations and it's going to bring about peace and his light is going to come. And apparently that strikes a chord with the Magi. And so they start looking for the signs. And for roughly 500 years, they kept looking for the signs that these prophecies would come true. And then something happened in the night sky. From a thousand miles away in the east, the Magi could see something in the western sky that intrigued them. And it was enough out of the ordinary that it captured their attention. They knew 
that something important was taking place. And so they went searching, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, because they're living in relative comfort in Babylon, and what they're searching for appears to have come from the land of the Jews, which is a long ways away. So they go on a trip. They go searching for something that they're missing. And why would they do that? I mean, they're rich people. They're powerful people. But they also realize, I think, that they were missing something. Their current political situation didn't fulfill the need that they had. Their resources didn't fulfill the need that they had. Their positions didn't fulfill the needs that they had. They were missing something. And so they saw a sign and they went seeking. Now, the account is brief and it's a little fuzzy. They've got to travel from the east to go where they have seen the sign. So they've got to walk or ride camels or whatever it is that they do. They follow a trade route. It takes maybe two months. So they're on the road for a long time. And apparently, the star disappears at some point. They see it, and then they kind of just wander in that general direction. And at some point, they have to use some deductive logic. We don't see the star anymore. We're looking for the king of the Jews. So where is the king of the Jews likely to be born? Well, oh, the capital city, Jerusalem. I think that's a pretty good guess. And to whom is the king of the Jews most likely to be born? Well. So the current king, that's kind of the way it works. A king begets a king, begets a king, begets a king. So that's where they go. They go to Jerusalem and they look for the king there. And in the process of that, they meet Herod the Great, who is king at the time. And if you read the passage, it's interesting because they don't actually seek out Herod. Herod seeks them. So they must have got into the town and they must have just been asking everyone where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In other words, there is a new king and there was a sign in the heavens. And at this point, I can't help but kind of putting myself in the story because think like a magi that you've been longing, the story has been passed down to you from generation to generation, and you finally see this sign that the Messiah has come, and you're all excited. You've traveled for months to get there to witness this great thing that God has done, and you get to the center of where this is probably happening, and you imagine there's going to be this huge party celebrating what God has done, and all you find is nothing. Nothing out of the ordinary. Everybody's just kind of doing their thing. And people either don't know or they don't care or they're too afraid, but where you expect a party, there's just people living lives. And so I imagine that number one, they were stunned. And number two, they're probably just asking everybody, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? We saw his sign. So they're asking everybody. And eventually, word that there are people who are asking about a new king of the Jews gets back to Herod. Herod hears about this. And the comment that is made is, Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. You see, the Magi weren't the only ones who were seeking something. Herod was seeking something too. Herod was seeking to preserve his own power and his position. Herod was really good friends with Caesar Augustus. And Herod spent his whole life seeking wealth and power and notoriety, and most importantly, the favor of Augustus, because he was the fount of all things good. 
In fact, some of the greatest monuments still standing in Israel were built by Herod the Great as a tribute to Augustus or more likely as a tribute to himself. Herod was seeking power. Herod was seeking wealth. Herod was seeking influence. And Herod would do whatever it took to keep what he had. He killed his wife to keep it. He killed a number of his sons in order to keep those things. Herod was pretty much an absolute monster. And it says that Herod was disturbed when he hears about this because if there's a new king, that's a threat to him. And it notes that Jerusalem was worried. I think Jerusalem was worried because they were wondering, what's he going to do? So because he's unfamiliar with this, he calls all of his advisors and he asks them about where the scripture says that the Messiah is supposed to be born. And it's a little bit surprising because this is just basic knowledge. This is not graduate level religious stuff. So it tells you just how seriously Herod did or didn't take the Jewish part about being king of the Jews. So he calls his wise men in to tell him where the baby's going to be born. They tell him Bethlehem in Judea. And then he calls the Magi in to figure out when the baby might actually have been born. And this is why people think that even though the wise men come with your manger scene, that it, they might not have been, this might have been even two years later. Uh, because it could be that the star was much earlier. So Herod calls the Magi and he goes, tell me again, when exactly did you see the star? Because he wants to know when the child is born because he wants to get rid of the child. But because Herod's relatively crafty, it takes that in order to keep a throne in the Middle East at the time, he sends them off and tells them to find the child and then to let him know so that he might come and worship him also. Now hold on to that because we're going to get back to that. And then, all of a sudden, apparently, the star shows up again. And it leads them to where Jesus is. In verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, what have they come to do? Well, we get this in the first verse, but now we also get this here. They've come to worship. And worship here is a really interesting word. It's, it's two words that are put together. One of the words means to kiss, and the other one is to bow down. And so there's actually this picture of kissing the ground, of bowing before someone in complete and total surrender to them. So worship that they are paying to Jesus it's not this half-hearted thing. This is them just completely laying them whole, their whole selves before Jesus and kind of reorienting their, uh, what they've been seeking for. It's not a half-hearted thing. When we think of worship, most of the time we think of singing. But really, worship is a life posture. It's how you orient yourself. You're because no matter what you think, whether you're religious or spiritual or a-religious or whatever, you're bowing down to something. You're giving yourself to something. It might be addictions, it might be politics, it might be youth, but you're worshiping something. Each of us is. The question is, what or who are you worshiping? Now, the Magi had much of what most of us desire and they knew that it wasn't enough. And they had finally found what they were looking for. 
And that's what they devoted themselves to instead. So let's go back to Herod for a minute. When Herod dismisses the Magi, he says to them, let me know where he is because, and here's the actual force of the Greek verb, I should come to worship him. The worship is the same word that's used, but it's a different tense. The Magi came to worship. Herod should worship. And that is so true. Yes, Herod, yes, you should have come to worship him. But Herod essentially said, I'd rather be king than have a healthy marriage. I'd rather be king than love my children. I'd rather be feared than loved. Now, we wouldn't say things like that out loud, but sometimes our lives show that would prefer something else to a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship to our kids or a healthy relationship with God. I was thinking about this, about how we live our lives and how different things become important to us. And years ago now, um, I went out for coffee with a guy who I really liked. I, I thought he was a great guy. And I listened for about an hour to a really tragic story about how estranged he was from his children and how later on in life he'd tried to go back and make things up to them, but his children didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I recognize, I've been around, you know, that it takes two to tango, so there's probably more to the story, but it just didn't seem right because this was such a good guy. And then as weeks and months progressed and I got to know this person better, I realized that the most important thing to him was being right. In any situation, he just had to be right. Even when he was patently and obviously wrong, he had to be right. And so he kind of worshiped this image of himself as being right. And that's what cost him his kids. That's what cost him his family. That's ultimately what cost him his relationship with me. Not because I walked away from him, but because he walked away from me. It was very, very sad. The most important thing for him was to get his way. He thought maybe that would bring him what he was looking for. And that's just an example of how we're all worshiping something. And somehow it isn't always obvious, but there's something at the core of who we are that is the most important thing. So as you look at this story, how does this affect us? So this is the third in this series. We first talked about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And then we talked about God being in the manger. And now we're really asking the question, what should our response be to that? Because we're all seeking something. And the example of the wise men is to worship. It, worship it, worshiping is a recognition that we aren't finding what we're longing for in any other place. Augustine, in his confessions, said of God, For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. I think Augustine does a great job of nailing the human condition. The only place where we find rest, that is peace, is when we find it in God. Everything else we chase after, whether it's the need to be right, or to have power, or influence, or whatever, ultimately leaves us restless and peaceless. And so we see this example of the Magi of having a life commitment, of reorienting 
to follow Jesus. And then they offer him gifts as an act of worship. Now, we might not have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that's not necessarily what Jesus needs from us, but what do we have to bring as a, as a sign that we are truly worshiping and reorienting our lives towards Jesus? Well, I think we do pretty well to look to the lyrics of In the Bleak Midwinter for that. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him? Give him my heart. And that's what worship really looks like. And that's what Jesus is looking for. And that's how we find peace, when we worship and give our hearts. We're all seeking something. We're all looking for peace and for meaning. Everyone in this story was seeking peace. Herod never found it. The last chapter in the Herod story is when he was getting ready to die. He knew he was on his deathbed. He knew that nobody would be sorry to see him go. And so he had his guards gather up all of the leading citizens of the land, hundreds and hundreds of people. And the, the order that Herod gave was that when he died, all of those people were to be executed so that there would be weeping upon his death. That's how pathetic Herod ended up being. Herod died and his guards let everyone go free because even his guards didn't like them. Herod never found the peace that he was looking for. The wise man, near as we can tell, went home changed people. What will happen to us is pretty much up to us. So let me ask you three questions. What are you seeking this Christmas? Number two, what's your general reaction to Jesus? Admiration, mild interest, boredom, or worship? And number three, what is one thing you can do this week to help you experience the peace of Jesus? Thank you.